We all remember the Freedom Convoy. People flooded into downtown Ottawa. The U.S.-Canadian border closed, and cities across Canada and the United States were bombarded by large gatherings of protesters. The COVID-19 pandemic had definitely taken its toll. Some of the organizers of this protest, which, as I mentioned, started more than a week ago, they do want to overthrow the government. The police chief says COVID protests are a, quote, nationwide insurrection driven by madness. And while the news covered the event, with images of trucks and people and chanting and horns blaring, analysts were soaking in piles and piles of data. I think OSINT played a huge part in this. Like I'd mentioned, when it comes to risk assessments, open source, that's like one of the best places. This is crowdsourced information. People are willingly and wanting to put their information out there. They want to share with their other groups. Yeah, they didn't really want probably law enforcement all in there, but that did happen. Of course it did, because if it's going to be a threat to something like our borders or, or any, anything like that, like their, their law enforcement needs to be aware and need to be part of that as well. As the tide of the 2022 Freedom Convoy protests rose, the divide between fact and fiction quickly grew. Online groups promoting conspiracy theories sprouted with a viral tenacity. New and unknown social media apps became the go-to methods of communication. Adversarial Russian state-sponsored media, like RT and Sputnik, stoked the fires of chaos. Internet troll farms and disinformation mercenaries engaged in spreading extremist views on the topic via Twitter and Facebook. Hell, even some nationalist militia guys tried to smuggle a truck full of guns and body armor across the border for some attack they were planning. And the big question that hangs over all of this, especially for the analysts and people who monitored all this stuff, is are we ready for this to happen again? This is Cloak and Dagger, a podcast about OSINT, technology, and global conflict. I'm MJ Benias. This podcast is powered by Sapper Labs Group. For more, visit www.sapperlabs.com. Uh, I'm Ritu Gill. Uh, I'm an OSINT analyst. I work for the government. I have 16 years working for law enforcement. Uh, 12 of those years were with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police um, in various roles. Um, once I got into OSINT, um, it got quite exciting just to see all the different avenues and different ways we could um, find information about targets. Ritu's role as an analyst with the government gives her front row seats to how OSINT can be used in criminal investigations and in securing the country. There's a lot we can gain from open source intelligence depending on, you know, where we're looking. We cannot say that if I'm looking at the social media of an individual, that it doesn't say something about them. It does say something. It paints a picture of perhaps their lifestyle. Um, it gives you a background of maybe who they associate with, you know, um, what kind of activities they're involved with. The breadcrumbs that we collect, you know, on somebody's online footprint, what it says about them, 
when we piece these things together, it shares a bigger story pretty much about that person, especially when you connect it with other types of intelligence. Right. It's like a giant puzzle. Uh, stuff like human intelligence and signals intelligence are definitely key pieces, but OSINT fills in the background. It provides an analyst the connections between all the other forms of intelligence. It shows you how bits of signals intelligence fit together, or how that geospatial intelligence that was collected over there fits in with the human intelligence piece that we collected over here. Putting it together, collecting it, and making sense of it. So the intelligence part doesn't just come from collecting the information. It comes from making sense of what the message is here. So if I collect a bunch of information from social media on a person, that's not simply intelligence. What I would need to do is go in, evaluate, analyze, um, look for patterns perhaps, and write write up something that tells a story. Do, is there something that I can find here that gives it the intelligence and angle, right? One of the questions we always ask is, what is, what is the purpose of the open source? So what, what's the Intel question essentially? So if I start out a request, I might say, what am I trying to answer? Because that is gonna help direct my open source research and try to answer the question in the right way. Um, simply just going out there and collecting information doesn't work uh, because you could be uh, you know, down a rabbit hole for hours uh, on one thing that is has nothing to do with your request. Um, so again, like if we're looking to find somebody because uh, there's a warrant out for their arrest, we might go in one direction. Um, we might look at their social media. We might look at, you know, have they been tagged in other posts by other friends? Uh, when was the last post, right? Um, so essentially, yes, yes, open source is collecting publicly available information, but it's also the emphasis should always be put on the evaluating and the analysis we add to what we find to give it meaning, right? Because uh, if we don't give it meaning, then then it's going to be that, uh, I guess what some individuals say, like, hey, it's not good intel. Exactly. Information and data can tell a story. But sometimes, in some instances, that information and data can become a tidal wave. Like if you want hashtag Freedom Convoy? And you're in like something like a platform like um, TweetDeck, which monitors Twitter. Um, like you are, you'd be overwhelmed in like two seconds because like you're just like every second there's a tweet and people are saying different things. There was data overload. Um, there's so much information out there. Uh, you really had to narrow your focus in terms of like, okay, where are we? Where am I looking? Um, what platforms am I going to look at? Okay, let's get into this. When everyone had to get vaccinated and all that kind of stuff, there was a lot of pushback, of We're course. We're doing this in a form of sacrifice, and it's through sacrifice, as Jesus taught us, that the most important changes... There's all these policies put, put forward by the government saying, like, hey, you have to get vaccinated. There's going to be pushback from some people who are like, nope, not going to happen. So, you know, and then there's groups out there that were like, we're anti-vaccine, we're not going to do it, we're not going to listen to the government, that kind of thing. Insurrection driven by madness. I see an experimental concoction. Um, 
definitely divided society in a bunch of ways. So this story is a complicated one. In late 2021, the Canadian and American governments provided accommodations for unvaccinated cross-border truckers. And this was to help ease the massive strain already placed on the supply chain by the COVID pandemic. Those accommodations came to an end in January of 2022, so to cross the border, they would have to be fully vaccinated or to quarantine for two weeks upon entering the country. Before we keep going, we need to remember that what happened next was not some random event. None of this happened in a bubble. We need to remember that swirling around all this for a few years already, even before the pandemic, was a significant collection of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, fear, panic, anxiety, social media groups creating echo chambers of bad information and memes, state-sponsored attempts to manipulate the message to sow chaos, and a whole bunch of popular pundits and influencers using this to promote themselves. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. And their ideologies. Canada's working class has finally rebelled after years of relentless abuse. You get things like you got things like conspiracies going on in some of these groups. And, uh, you know, yes, there was disinformation and there's misinformation. There's fake news that we've dealt with, which is just really messed things up, I would say. Like it, it was kind of um, it was numbing after a while, but uh, also very shocking and very surprising seeing some of the things that people were believing or posting Um some of the stuff was in news media, you know, saying like, hey, this group believes that if you drink this, you'll get cured of, you know, when it's like literally drinking poison um, or something like that. But it was just kind of shocking, the belief system. But they really, I would say some of these individuals really thought the government was out to get them, right? I imagine this all like building a fire when you're out camping. Out there in the forest, there are all these separate and distinct pieces of deadfall and brush and bits of kindling. And when it's time to build a fire, it all kind of needs to be gathered up into one spot. That, that wood sheds its solitary life and joins the others in this nice big pile. And then there's a spark. I would say together they found this, uh, this connection with each other just because they had that similar mindset. Triggered by a viral TikTok video of a trucker being stopped at the Detroit-Windsor border, a small group started a Facebook Live event on January 13th, 2022 to plan a convoy protest, the, the route they should take and the logistics of it all. The next day, a fundraiser was started for the event via GoFundMe. A week later, the number of truckers and supporters grew, and on January 22nd, the cross-country trip from British Columbia to Ottawa began. Hundreds of semi-drivers converged on cities across Canada. It was kind of scary to see um, what that, the amount of people that were showing up at, say, one location, what they could do, right? Because you're definitely outnumbered, law enforcement's outnumbered at this point. I remember one moment where I saw actually a vehicle being picked up by people. Like there were so many people in the crowd that they actually picked up a car and moved it physically. Um, I thought that was a little like, holy smokes. I'm like, what is happening? But <laughs> like, you know, there's so many people there and it was like pretty much the mindset. Uh, they were like, something's in our way and we're just going to physically remove it to get past. And that that's a scary thought to think that 
it's almost like I don't care. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Um, and I have the number of people behind me to do it. By January 29th, the convoy hit Ottawa. Estimates range, but somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 protesters swarmed the downtown area and Parliament Hill. The numbers, to be fair, declined quite quickly over the next several days, and while there were some pundits who definitely exaggerated the size of the protest, there was significant physical and economic damage. Now, most of us know how this all plays out, and honestly, we don't need to get into it. But to very quickly sum up, there are several protests like this across Canada and the United States. Multiple borders get blocked and shut down for days, and eventually, the Prime Minister enacts the Emergencies Act to break this all up. There's a lot of frustration and anger. Emotions are running high. It's definitely a crisis for Canada. However, during all this, during the, the chaos and the never-ending news reports and the unceasing honking, well, you remember how I mentioned at the top of this episode that intelligence gathering is like collecting puzzle pieces? Well, analysts like Ritu, uh, they were collecting puzzle pieces. From the online perspective, uh, it was interesting because I ended up seeing just just sitting back and looking and seeing what was happening. Um, so much information was being posted online um, about where individuals were going. Uh, you know, not only that, but like what platforms they were using at that time, Telegram, you know, some people were using an app called Zello, which is like a two-way radio kind of um, uh, app, but that's because they were driving. So it was easier to like press a button and leave a recording versus texting and driving. Um, that was interesting because that time we started noticing like, hey, from the OSIN perspective, what apps are people using right now, right? Whether it was Telegram, and there's other ones too, but there was like Zello, there was Facebook groups, um, and they would post in these groups and you would just, from a link to a link to a link, you would just find all the different places they were posting. Of course, these people, some of them at least, maybe they didn't realize at first, of course there's going to be law enforcement lurking in some of these spaces. Um, this is a public space, it's open, anybody can sign up, um, that kind of thing. People are doing, people are going to certain areas, uh, like at a border, and they were posting live videos. So analysts and law enforcement were basically monitoring all this stuff. Countless posts and pictures and videos. The, the whole movement was playing out on social media, and all that data was just out there. But definitely, I would say during that time, it, it was um, it was chaotic. There was a lot going on across Canada, I would say. Um, and just how rapidly it kind of grew. It went from such a like sometimes a small group and just increased. Uh, it picked up momentum quite quickly. Um, and, you know, of course, the things that happened in Ottawa, I thought things got out of control a bit. Um, but at the same time, I think the open source that could be collected um, by various agencies was something that gave uh, these law enforcement individuals the resources they needed to kind of back up. In some spaces, you know, and, and across Canada, I mean, that's a large space we're talking about, but like depending on what province um, using OSINT, you can 
you have the ability to deploy resources accordingly, right? Um, and th those are one of the benefits of using open source research and, you know, open source intelligence to tell us, hey, what it, what's the sentiment online? Are this, is this a peaceful process, uh, pe peaceful protest versus, okay, no, people are quite agitated or we have agitators in the crowd that are like egging people on and getting people ramped up, you know, um, law enforcement look at that and they're going to assess and accordingly will deploy resources in certain spaces, right? Um, again, it's making that assessment, making a risk assessment, right, at the end of the day by looking at what we're seeing online. And of course, as an analyst, we don't just take one piece of information. It's going to be, you know, it's not just like, hey, there's one person. There has to be like, there's going to be a number of uh, different types of resources we might look at and, and say like, hey, these are the different sources that are saying A, B, and C. Do you think that, that extremism is becoming more prevalent in Canada because it's become more shored up? It's, it's less fringy to have extremist beliefs, let's say. Not that extremists call themselves extremists, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I would just, I would say the word that I'm thinking of is it, it's become more normalized. Um, definitely with everything that's happened in the last couple of years, I think, you know, and, and the certain, you know, I'm going to use like air quotes, wins that these groups thought they had, um, with, you know, whether they entered a restaurant without wearing a mask and they thought that was a win, um, you know, at the time when we were supposed to uh, follow those rules. Um, I would say that the fact that they, in numbers, they, they, they found some common ground with their, the number of people behind them. But I think this movement and the thing, that stuff, it did normalize it for them. It wasn't vocalized. It wasn't something that was just out there. And now it's like, well, I know there's my people out there that think like me. We got this dose of reality in Canada, that ideas, whether they are grounded in facts or not, can create enough of a spark to motivate people into extreme action. And the analysts in the country watched as one video on TikTok motivated a Facebook Live meeting, which motivated a fundraising campaign and a whole bunch of other social groups and posts, which eventually turned into an actual convoy of protesters countrywide, shutting down cities and borders and costing the Canadian government billions in lost revenue and expenditures. When it all ended, there was this sigh of relief across the country. But all those little burning embers were still left over from the fire of the Freedom Convoy. And while we hope they all just fade away over time, there's a lot of dry grass lying around, just ready for that right gust of wind. Regardless, open source intelligence played a massive role in how law enforcement dealt with the situation as it played out. But as Ritu sees it, Canada still has a long way to go when it comes to integrating OSINT into its intelligence culture. I feel like we're constantly trying to play catch up to get where, you know, get better at open source. You know, why why don't they hire independent OSINT people? Is it, you know, is it just, I don't know, it's just a scary place uh, just because that's not what we do? Um, is it because of security clearance and is it complicated? Is it, you know, um, I know those are things that they can 
get past and there's like avenues. It's just something that hasn't maybe been explored. And maybe it has been explored with certain agencies that we are unaware of, you know. Um, but I definitely think, I think it's, it's, we've come a long way. Like, and, and I can't speak for any particular organization or agency just as a, just, just looking in and, and saying like, okay, here is where we are. This is where we need to be. Um, you would think that I, I would say that examples of like what we dealt with, with the freedom convoy would be great pushers to get us to move forward and, you know, get, you know, kind of push, push the limits a little bit and, and just get ahead, um, with the way we do things. I think sometimes movement is slow. Um, but I would say that, that the fact that it's being recognized more, like you're seeing OSINT more and more is just a more beneficial and positive thing for us, uh, from all sides, but even from government, like, I mean, they can't ignore the things that were in the news, that things that like, hey, how was that piece together? Well, guess what? There was a team of people behind that. And that's why we found that. So hopefully those types of examples will just push that forward and keep keep them on their toes, too, to be like, hey, like this is what we need to do to get better at this. Sometimes we all just need a little push to change how we do things. I know I do. You you hearing this, Government of Canada? Let me know if you want to talk. I'm a good listener. I want to thank Ritu Gill for appearing on this episode. Links to her work are in the show notes. If you like the show, please give us a rating, and a review would be really great too. Hit subscribe! You should share the show on your social media. Uh, if you need to make some small talk in an awkward social situation, you could mention the show. You know, spread the word. For weekly news roundups and intelligent insights, make sure you visit our website, www.cloakanddagger.blog. I'm MJ Benias, and thank you to Kennedy Chapel who helped produce this episode. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you here next time.